Welcome to AI Dialogues, a podcast series brought to you by Educational Initiatives, an organization working towards creating a world where children everywhere are learning with understanding. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, academicians, policy makers, and education leaders to delve deeper into the most urgent and most important questions on solving for quality and equity in education. This episode is hosted by Pranav Kothari. In this episode, we have with us former CSR head of Vedanta Limited, Neelima Khetan. Before this, she held leadership positions at Coca-Cola and Seva Mandir. If someone wants uh, part of the CSR budget that you have to deploy, uh, what is the trick to get your approval? One thing that organizations need to understand is you have to find an alignment in terms of what is it that the uh, company is wanting to do and what is it that you are doing. In most cases, company CSR tends to be aligned to the core business of the company. And of course, the other thing that companies put a lot of value on is innovation and scale. So if there is a prospective partner that brings a new idea to the table and can show ability to scale, they will be preferred. India is the first country in the world to mandate a minimum spent by corporates on corporate social responsibility. But how do corporates narrow down on where to spend that 2% of profits? What forms their decision-making framework? And how does CSR contribute towards social development? Neelama shares experience from her 25-year-old career in the development sector and the consequent transition to the corporate world. Further, she unveils insights on the intertwining of the two and the necessity of impact evaluations. On to Pranav now. So, Neelama ji, could you tell us a little bit about uh, Seva Mande? Uh, why was the organization set up? Uh, what did it aim to do? Um, so, Seva Mandir is a uh, little over 50 years old now and uh, at that time, the so it was early years after independence when this organization was formed and it's uh, interesting because at that time, the mood in the country was that uh, Gandhiji had given this call to the Congress to disband and go into villages, uh, but despite that, many people had great expectations uh, from the government, uh, but there were uh, people who were still thinking that the answers will come from also citizen involvement in uh, development. Uh, so uh, Sevamandir's founder also came from that same perspective. So in the late 60s when he thought of setting up Seva, in, interestingly the uh, foundation stone outside Sevamandir is dated 1931. So the idea was that old, he got to it only in the late 60s and the, uh, I, I won't say there was a very sophisticated kind of a thinking about what, it was just let's do something in villages, let's work with communities, let's, uh, uh, and at that time this consciousness raising and awareness raising was a big thing. So that's how Sevamandir started and it started with adult education which was, you know, a larger, more than literacy kind of adult education. So did you think the community would take care of its own development? And was it because they thought that the government was not doing enough? 
I think Pranav, the um, thinking was that if you look at the nature of the problems, then these problems cannot be solved without the involvement of the citizen. It's not about whether the state is doing enough or not doing enough. So if you look at some of the problems that, uh, that our democracy was born with, was let's say uh, the uh, fragmentation along caste, huh? um, a hierarchical uh, society that we were, or women's status in society, or even a small thing like let's say early marriage. Huh? Look at any of these problems, these problems will not go away by government taking action. So what can government do? Government can say, uh, child marriage is illegal. So fine, uh, but will only making something illegal make the issue go away from society? That won't happen. Child marriage has happened because the society feels that it is alright for children to be married and you make it illegal and why is it that you know you still have to do policing because people are still continuing to marry children at an earlier age because they don't believe that what the law has said is the right thing. So Nalamaji, what level did you join Seva Mandir and what level did you leave it? Uh, so of course, uh, uh, Seva Mandir didn't have levels like that. There would be field worker or something. But I came from Pradhan to Seva Mandir and Pradhan had this project executive which was the first level. So I carried that tag of project executive into Seva Mandir when I came. And uh, 25 years later I left after having served as chief executive for 12 years, so... So project executive says CEO, what did you do to you know, rise to the top? Nothing I mean, I had... Uh, so also when you, uh, at least in those days, when you enter an organization, it was not with the idea of building a career, it was with an idea of doing something. You said that I did whatever needed to be done. I mean, were there times that you have seen people have issues when certain work is given to them uh, that they think it's below their level or seniority or experience or dignity to do that? I, I'll say Sivamandir of course had a very kind of, you know, uh, still has uh, a, a participatory kind of a work culture. So, uh, the it was not as though I was giving an order to somebody to do something, but it's the team would decide together but uh, in one way of course see there were things that we uh, wanted to do uh, that needed to be done differently let's put it like this because the external environment was changing people would expect certain things and so the organization would have to change and I know uh, at times there would be uh, uh, whoever was the chief executive then felt that maybe you know this change will be too drastic and uh, maybe you shouldn't do it and uh, I still remember the uh, for me the pleasant surprise was that uh, so I said okay let me go and talk to the team that is supposed to bring about this change and what they feel about it and I had those conversations one-to-one -one with a lot of people who were old-time Sevamandir people and for me, the most pleasant surprise was that in these one-to-one -one conversations, I felt that most people understood the logic about why that change was needed and they uh, accepted. So I was so happy that first kind of major change that I was proposing, the team had bought into it. So the chief executive was a bit fearful 
that this was going to be too radical a change but the team since I did the one-to-one -one conversation seemed comfortable so when we came to actually the meeting where it was to be decided it was everyone was you know happy with it. It reminds me of this quote by Margaret Thatcher which is never underestimate you know what a small group of people can yeah. do it's the... Like so Seva Mandir mein apne kya sikha? Bhoat sikha. I think the first thing Pranav that I still remember which was like a awakening moment for me was so I came into this development world thinking that you know this this work means that you have to just forget about your personal life you have to you know leave everything and this is noble work so you it's like you have to Spartan life don't think about family don't think about common pleasures of every day and it's this is what it's supposed to be and I think the one thing the first thing that Seva Madhya taught me was that uh, you can still be yourself and do this work so there is no harm in enjoying an ice cream if that's what you like there is and you can still be true to the work that you want to do you can uh, you know, still uh, uh, leave a meeting and go to attend to your child. You, it's not being disloyal to the cause that you know you chose your child over that meeting. For me, that was very important because I think I was coming into this work thinking that tyag is how you have to sacrifice things, and Seva Madhya taught me that normal people, ordinary people with ordinary lives can also do this work. I've been working in the education sector for the last seven years, right? And uh, I'm thinking, like, should I change my sector and now work in the health sector? Should I go and work for climate change? Um, you know, sometimes there's this feeling, okay, now I've done it, I know it all. I'm having the same conversations every day. Or should I follow your path of spending 25 years in a single organization pursuing one singular mission? Both have their pros and cons, but uh, one advantage of, and nowadays nobody works for 25 years in one organization, Pranav. Why is that? But, uh, so I, and should they be? Yeah, so I, okay, so I'll come to that guessing a little later, but I'll tell you, one big advantage of working for 25 years in one organization that I felt that in 25 years you kind of see it all. Huh. Uh, so you see a thing succeed but then you also will see that at times so there is a village community let's say and you feel that they fought this big battle against let's say suppose they were fighting for the commons in that village around the pasture which had been encroached by the uh, uh, powerful landlord in that village community put up a fight and they managed to get the pasture i'm just taking an example which did happen so you will see the community has come and you will say that you know hey this is a success but if you stay long enough then maybe you will then see other kinds of um, problems that will come in so the story is not a so it's like you know watching the movie after the happily ever after marriage then the real movie begins that you begin to see 
the husband and wife have to make in it. So the long term teaches you many different kinds of things and you know that, you know, love is, I'm just taking that analogy, that love is not just, you know, you fall in love and then everything is good. You fall in love, but then to build a strong relationship, you have to do a lot. It teaches you something very different from what, uh, on the other hand, of course, people, I think, um, move because like you said, and, and I've also in the latter part of my career moved uh, um, and and I think that's taught me different things but I certainly feel that if I hadn't stayed in one place for a longer period of time in the beginning it would not have given me that solid base that it provided me so but how does one know that one isn't getting comfortable and you know you're kind of used to you know all the players you know I mean everybody in the in, in our industry you can call and you've developed a reputation and you've got into this comfort zone it's kind of hard to step away from that. Yeah, you're right, Pranav. Uh, that is quite possible. But one thing that I tell my team also, that the longer you stay with, let's say, one program, um, the only way you will grow is if you keep going deeper and deeper into that program. And over time, you will uh, accumulate uh, insights which are longer term, you will have data to help you uh, develop those insights or challenge those insights or whatever. So it's the onus is on you. If you want to grow, you can keep going deep. Of course, I'm not saying uh, that you can keep going deep forever. You have to again, uh, the time when you feel, I also felt at some point in Seva Mandir that I had, you know, come to the end of my learning curve and I needed to step away to allow the organization to continue to learn and grow um, and I guess different people will arrive at it at different time but but there is opportunity to learn while staying in in kind of one space also but the onus is much more on you when you move to a new environment then the environment will force you to learn and you will need to learn without making too much of an effort yourself but when you stay in a familiar environment the owner shifts on you if you want the learning to be continuous. After spending 25 years at Seva Mandir, when you joined the corporate social responsibility team of Coca-Cola, what was your first day like? Like what, what hit you the most? Like, you know, <laughs> how was that transition for you? Things which take up so much time in Seva Mandir, for example, you know, uh, a simple leave application that you have to do or submitting your bills and they take so And just because here there are resources and there is technology, it just becomes so simple. So of course that hits you that so many things that you struggled with seem so simple. Uh, so you were drinking a lot of happiness. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I think um, Many other things, of course, which uh, in this transition stood out was, I think we, uh, there's so much uh, we work on the basis of perception. So uh, the not-for-profit sector has perception about the for-profit sector and the, in turn, what I realized when I joined the CSR uh, sections of Weather Coke or any other company, I think you begin to realize that there are perceptions, equally strong perceptions on the other side about the not-for-profit sector. And that's a very humbling realization that uh, 
um, I may think I'm, you know, your cat's whiskers, but the world doesn't think that. And uh, unfortunate also at times that there is so much of a perception gap between the two realities uh, on both sides, I'm saying. Uh, but yeah. What are some things that are common? One, people. Uh, so I used to always think that, you know, people in the not-for-profit sector are on a pedestal and they are, you know, uh, holy people, good people, uh, concerned people. Um, but when I went into the corporate world, I realized that as many number of as good people that I had met in the not-for-profit side, I met in the for-profit side. Given the difference in perceptions, between corporates and non-profits. Is there even an attempt to work together? Both the market and the non-market players need to know each other better, uh, need to work with each other. Both bring a distinct set of uh, strengths to the table. Uh, um, and therefore, there is a potentially strong multiplier when the two work together. But working together is not simple. Uh, it takes time, it takes energy. Uh, you have to learn to understand each other. Um, the rhythms are different. Both have to learn to adapt to each other. You have hundreds of NGOs you know, applying for a grant. How do you know uh, which organization do you think you'll be able to form a partnership with? So that's a difficult one for most corporates and especially now because I think the uh, NGO uh, landscape has also become, uh, it's, um, there are many, many different kinds of organizations that are there. Um, and choosing the right partner is, uh, is always difficult. Uh, while there are, uh, there are some agencies that exist who will help you find the right partner. Um, but I've seen most of the people that I know in the CSR space rely a lot on word of mouth. Uh, when looking for a new partner because I think people who have worked with somebody before are in a very good position to say whether they can work or not. Uh, I'll also say that some of the qualities that help that partnership is if there is openness on both sides, if the NGO is also open and of course the company also has to be open. So if someone wants uh, you know, a grant, uh, someone wants a part of the CSR budget that you have to deploy, uh, what is the trick to get your approval? One thing that organizations need to understand is you have to find an alignment in terms of what is it that the uh, company is wanting to do and what is it that you are doing. In most cases, company CSR tends to be aligned to, in some way or the other, the core business of the company. So I hear you on the alignment of what the company is doing. So geography makes sense because the company might have factories yeah, or locations yeah. or offices. Yeah. Uh, the second is the business line. So if I'm a water uh, beverage manufacturer, Absolutely. that is an alignment. What else? What are number three and four? Number three would be the ability of that NGO to show uh, measurable results. Uh, whether we like it or not, uh, even though we may say, and I also say that a lot of development is change is hard to measure. Um, but uh, companies, and again I'm saying they're not philanthropies, huh? they are accountable for even this CSR money that they spend, in some ways they're accountable to their shareholders. 
And of course, the other thing that companies put a lot of value on is innovation and scale. So if there is a prospective partner that brings a new idea to the table and can show ability to scale, they will be preferred. When you know, a funder is thinking about getting evaluation, to what extent should they go? Should they be checking the timesheets through biometric attendance? Should they be doing independent verifications, surprise checks, audits, engaging? Uh, how do you view monitoring and evaluation as a funder? Uh, and you know, to what extent do you recommend one going? Uh, so I think uh, uh, both ends of, of it need to be evaluated, both the input and the output part. Um, and I see there is much more emphasis in measuring the input, but lesser in measuring the output. Again, understandable because oftentimes it's hard to measure the output or the outcome. Um, but that's, uh, for me, also it has been a learning uh, because uh, when placed in a corporate context, I realized that the only thing that will convince uh, my colleagues, uh, the larger the uh, board or the uh, uh, other senior management that we were doing something worthwhile is when they are able to see the outcome level results. I've had to uh, think about, uh, as I said, figure out what could be those outcome level results that could be measured within, let's say, one year time frame, two year time frame. Uh, and again, they may not be perfect, but some kind of at least impact you can measure and you can keep changing it as you go along. Uh, so basically what I'm saying, Pranav, that emphasis is needed on both. I think a lot of uh, the times uh, more emphasis is, is placed on measuring the input. For example, like you said, have a biometric in place, have this in place, have that, you know, uh, GPS enabled pictures, uh, uh, but not so much on the outcome. But I think uh, both are essential. If you can keep the space for uh, honest conversations so that your partner feels confident enough to say if something is not working. It's really difficult to be honest with your donor because you know you want that grant to come in again next year. You don't you want to keep them happy. Right? What is it that uh, a funder should be doing to create that comfort environment where a recipient uh, is able to open up, uh, is able to be vulnerable uh, to the donor? So one thing, Pranav, uh, the honesty will come through conversations. Huh? So if, the, if your uh, relation with the recipient, with the partner is only one, you know, once in six months get a report and uh, then you just judge the report against, okay, this is what you were supposed to deliver and this is what you've done, uh, I don't think you will get much honesty through that. But what I have found effective is if you put in place a system of uh, just meeting and talking about what is happening, either that is through visiting with the partner in the field and going through what is happening, it's also instructive for oneself because whatever you will find in the field will never fit completely what you had thought in the office. So you will learn and also the partner will gather a bit more courage to maybe tell you what is happening. At Seva Mandir, uh, you were amongst the first few organizations that signed up for an independent third-party randomized control trial. Uh, 
you know, in an era where the way to show impact was through photographs and good narratives and case studies, what inspired you to subject yourself to an independent RCT evaluation? What was going on in your mind and, you know, what happened after that? So, um, I think uh, must be several factors, but I will mention two, I think, which helped us in this. And this is in 1996 when uh, Abhijit and Michael first came to Seva Mandir. I think one, Seva Mandir had always had a tradition for many years, uh, uh, I had seen, of having an open door policy for interns from all over the world. So we would get young university graduates, college uh, students, and many of these interns would come and because they would be here for two months or a short period of time or three months, they would pick up one small thing and then go into the village and go deeper into it. And with all of them, we had this uh, system of what we called a Khula Manch, an open forum. They would come at the end, they would make a presentation and they would ask tough questions and they will make observations which would be uncomfortable. So a third eye in a sense. So, Sevamandir had had that tradition of being questioned, uh, of encouraging that questioning. But the second, I think the more important one was that Sevamandir was really blessed in terms of some of its donors that it had, uh, particularly two donors, one Dutch, one German, who encouraged us actually to also talk about failures. Uh, at a time when uh, most donors only want to know about so what has succeeded and therefore you feel a pressure to only talk about what succeeded. We were really, really blessed to have these donors who gave us the confidence of long-term support irrespective of the outcomes and they said uh, be confident about sharing if something is not working and I think that led to such a rapid learning phase in Seva Mandir because we would question and we'll say this is not working, okay, let's do it differently. So I think because of those circumstances when Abhijit and Michael came and they said this is what they would like to do, one of course most of us didn't understand what is the meaning of RCT and uh, so we said yeah, 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 we are very happy. We were struggling with uh, how to make our uh, uh, decentralized single teacher schools in villages more effective. We were struggling with that. And uh, we had thought that, okay, maybe the answer is, you know, instead of having one teacher, maybe we have two teachers, maybe then it'll become a better school. And that's the time when Abhijit and uh, Michael came and they said, hold on, if that's what you want to try, only do this, do it in half the schools and don't do it in the other half. We said, yeah, that's it. So it was kind of uh, A, being uh, used to this kind of inquiry in a way having the confidence of our donors and then uh, when Abhijit and I think we didn't know what it was and we went in but I think the benefits that accrued to us from that partnership which continued for 12 long years was so much, so much that, uh, yeah. Could you elaborate on some of the benefits of signing up for an independent uh, evaluation? So a lot, lot of benefits. I think personally for me, uh, Pranav, that was around, I became the chief executive in 99 and uh, this partnership began in 96. And uh, um, the first program that they had got involved in was the education program, which was floundering. And as a result of their 
uh, their work. See, what, what they did was they produced data of such high quality that you could not fight with it. Mm. Otherwise, we would, you know, it would be anecdotal. So, okay, uh, I went to that center and that center was, you know, not mm. working and this was, so it was, you know, when I went, this happened, when you went, this happened. So, you are trying to make sense of the elephant huh, based on what you right. are seeing. But they were able to give us data, good data, uh, rigorously collected data, which you could not fight with. And uh, the first set of data that came out was not flattering at all. Uh, it showed us that our program was in deep trouble and we needed to do something about it. So, they are not telling us what to do in the but they just showed us the mirror and they said you know this is what it is so uh, I was very grateful and then all of us you know worked on how to improve it and and then in that conversation again JPAL was part of it and they said maybe we can try this or try this and so the second thing that I learned so one was respect for data and what good data can mean good data and the second thing was that I learned from them, which again, you know, you can say it is a story with both sides and um, I may have sometime mentioned that to you also. Uh, JPAL uh, helped us learn how to make things less complex. So you can't address the whole problem at once, it just is too daunting, but let's pick one part of it, let's fix uh, this side of it. Can we fix this and then we'll move to the next. So what I also feel is that you don't have to wait till steady state of your intervention has before you start measuring. Uh, in many ways an RCT allows you to be on that journey. So if you have multiple hypotheses of what might be steady state, RCT might be a good guiding light as to you know what data is saying is actually making a difference and isn't. Yeah. Absolutely Pranam. And for example, you know, when we realized that we needed to do something in this program and then let's say we had uh, broken it down into, okay, on the supply side, what is it that we will do and then we'll worry about the demand side. And of course, the transaction that happens within the school is something that was, but, but just in terms of on fixing the supply, uh, so many ideas came up. Some of them were crazy, huh? uh, absolutely crazy ideas. but. In another way, no idea was crazy and we said, okay, and JPAL team was as involved in the generation of the ideas, sane and crazy alike, and Sevamandir team was equally involved. So, uh, so, so we were on the journey, so RCT was also happening, but the journey to finding a solution was also happening. I, you know, I completely relate to this because when we were doing the RCT evaluation uh, by JPAL for the MindSpark in government schools, um, you know, for 10 years we had told everyone that you need the child and the device as a one-is-to-one -one model where every child is getting a personalized instruction. But because, you know, there was always um, constraints on how many computers could there be and Indian class sizes are larger, JPAL came up with this idea of why don't you pair students to teach. And we were thought they are crazy, this is outlandish, right? But we went with it because there was really no other solution. And in hindsight, it turned out that they were no worse off uh, sitting in pairs. And, and I just look back and I'm like, hey, if we didn't have this evaluation, we would have never gotten this idea because we were so dogmatic about how to approach Absolutely. that. Yeah. And which reminds me, you know, I was in this MindSpark school just two days ago 
and one of the things that the principal said in terms of you know why this program is working well he said the children work together and the, one of the first things he said you know it is so nice that do bachche ikattha baithte hain aur wo ek dusre ko samjhate hain so i said without any prompting that was one of his first things so. you know uh, i always uh, tell my dadi ke ek aap story sunaiye so so given that uh, <laughs> aap ek story sunaiye impact ke bare mein यस प्रोवाइडेड यू नो मैं नॉट योर दादी एज ओल्ड इनफ बट सो मेनी स्टोरीज प्रणव बट लेट मी टेल यू अ स्टोरी फ्राम द रिसेंट पास्ट सो इन द लास्ट कंपनी दर आई वर्क इन सो वी एजुकेशन इज वन एरिया इन विच वी डू अ लॉट ऑफ वर्क स्पेंड अ लॉट ऑफ मनी एंड द Uh, space for education that we chose for ourselves was of course early childhood care and education but also higher edu- uh, high school education so from class 9 to class 12 uh, and we wanted children to you know uh, do well in school and then have higher ambitions um, not be content with just thinking that i'll do a ba or i will you know just become a mason or a fitter but but have more ambitions and also understand the pathways to those ambitions uh, so we thought we will run uh, the super 30 kind of you know iit coaching program which is uh, so i know many people do that but we also thought let's do that uh, for us it was you know it will pull up the aspiration level for all the 7000 children hopefully so the first batch that we brought in uh, in that first batch we had uh, our selection was also not perfect and we got a mixed bag of children one of the girls i remember in that batch uh, uh, this girl uh, when she was born her father left the mother because uh, he said a girl has been born and uh, so the he walked out uh so the mother then brought up the girl on her own with support from her brother uh so the girl fortunately got picked up uh, and came to this program um but then when she came to this program uh, she she came to this program which would take her to an iit uh but the family was not convinced that the girl has it in her to make it to the iits nobody can say for sure whether a child will get into the iits so as the girl was getting older the pressure from the mother and the family was constant that you have to get married mm. uh pressure was enormous and the girl kept breaking down and she said that if i don't get into the iit i have to get married there is no other thing and and the girl also felt that i have to listen to my mother because she's brought me up alone i have no other and uh, pranav she wrote the exam crying and under this enormous pressure and feeling constantly that she can't do it and uh, this was a batch of 24 children of which three made it to the iit one of them was this girl wow. but the story doesn't end there so the girl of course she's gone to iit dhanbad and uh, but the girl comes from a conservative background and from that same village so we now have 
the second and the third and the fourth batch that have come in. We are also feeling more confident that now, you know, more, uh, more children can be brought in. And just about 15 days ago, I was meeting the fourth batch who had just come in. And uh, from one particular area, from where this girl was, her name is, uh, I shouldn't take her name, but anyways, from where this girl is, uh, from that same area, there was one more girl. But there were very few children from that area uh, and very few girls. So this girl stood up and we were just asking introductions and uh, our CEO asked that, you know, how come there are so few children from that area and why so few girls from that area? And this girl said uh, that, no, um, in our area, in our community, if a girl wants to study, then she's ridiculed and boys will make fun and so you basically go like this to school and come back from school like this you don't look right you don't look left because uh, why should you be studying that's not and we asked that question that but you know there is this girl who went to IT from your village and she said yes Pure Samaj ne usko sammanit kiya tha jab wo gai. so we said Samaj ne sammanit kiya so now it should become easier. But uh, so why I'm saying the story doesn't end, Pranav, that we had thought that the aspirational will, you know, pull the whole system immediately. But I, I think I'm also realizing that, you know, there is a pull this side and there is a pull this side. So you have to keep pulling from this side to counter this insufficient measure. Um, yeah, but. Uh, but it's uh, still a good story. It also sort of reminds us that um, one that, you know, just one success uh, and then feeling that you've solved the problem yeah, wouldn't yeah, work. Yeah, absolutely. So this constant pull uh, and the fact that change is a lot harder than what the whiteboard design uh, that was done at the time of making and sponsoring that program. Yeah. Perhaps some of this you just realize once you go back and follow up on yeah, an investment yeah. that was made yeah. four or five years ago. Yeah, yeah. So Indra Nui uh, once said that women can't have it all. Agree or disagree? Don't pitch me again. Indra Nui is, uh, I have a lot of respect for her, a huge regard for all that she's achieved. But this statement uh, I don't agree with. I think Pranav, you know, if you, this premise for life that somebody can have it all is the wrong premise. Mm. Nobody has it all. Women don't have it all, men don't have it all, no one has it all. So why, why kind of the, the conversation should not be formulated like this that men, women can't have it all. I am a woman, I have never for a minute in my life felt, you can say of course that I am a privileged woman because I, I, my parents did not put pressure on me to get married, I got decent education, my husband allowed me or you know was happy for me to have a career of mine. So you can say I am privileged and many women are not so privileged. But I am also saying it is not that it's a one-sided kind of a life that women always lose out and the men always win? I don't think so. I think uh, both uh, have their own sets of... Ch I, I know when I say it, 
Uh, there are many people who would say that I'm not sympathetic enough to women, but I'm, I, I, I don't like the idea of feeling that uh, I'm the bechara in this equation. I'm not the bechara. Nobody is the bechara. And, um, and nobody has everything. So it's a... Fantastic. This was such a lovely conversation. Thank you so much for sharing all the wisdom over the past you know, 35 years of career. Uh, with us. Thank you so much for coming. Thank it was you. a pleasure meeting you. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, do subscribe to our podcast. To hear more on forming meaningful partnerships and impact evaluation, do hear our podcasts with Lan Pritchett, Ashish Thavan, Rukmani Banerjee, Karthik Murli Tharan, and Sharath Jeevan. You can also check out the entire video series on www.youtube.com slash eivideos.